food was the greatest communicator. And I began to realize that food is, it's like music, right? It is what brings people together. And if that food could represent what at the time when I was younger, thinking of what sustainability was, maybe, just maybe, we could start seeing this domino effect into everything else in society. You know, supply chains don't have to exist in this super fragmented, blurry world. I mean, we we can create a way where a regenerative producer, if you like, or a producer who is managing land and regenerative, regenerating ecosystems can indeed have their product recognized, purchased, and bought by a brand. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Once again, we're going to talk about regenerative agriculture, a regenerative food system, and, and I've got just the guy to help me in this conversation. I want to welcome Wyatt Ball, and Wyatt is with Land to Market. Wyatt, welcome to Farm to Table Talk. Yeah, it's great to be here. I really appreciate you, you know, giving me a place to talk about Regen Ag and what we're trying to do in this world, so it's great to be here. Thank you. You know, I, I wonder sometimes if people are getting enough of um, conversations about regenerative agriculture, uh, because I talk about it a lot, and then I still find myself kind of tongue-tied when I'm somewhere and someone says, okay, give me the um, short explanation, and I kind of stumble around with the difference between sustainability, which can be fine, a lot of people using sustainability, but others point out that something about sustainability, it seems like it's just to be what's okay. You know, it's like you don't want to, you, you don't want to take away, uh, you want things to be, to be able to stay the same. Where regenerative seems to be offering a bigger promise. It's that, um, that it can make sense as a food system in a lot of different ways, but part of the challenge is to actually regenerate. Uh, not be satisfied with status quo. Um, am I heading the right direction with that? Yeah, it's it's funny in the regenerative space. You know, there's kind of always this desire to define it. You know, into some sort of bucket. You know, or some specific principles which are always useful. Um, you know, or practices or etc. But you know. When I think about regenerative, I try to keep it simple. And the idea for me, and maybe this is more of a land kind of basis, but is essentially, you know, how do we do something where the following year there's more rather than the same or less, right? So whether that's grasslands, we have more forage, we have more animal health, we have more societal health, or if it's, you know, an overall business entity, it's how do we, and not just for the sake of consuming more, but actually providing more health to a whole system rather than just thinking of one specific objective. So, you know, when I kind of talk about regenerative, we could go into the principles, the ground cover, you know, all, all these different ideas. But I really think it's just about how do we design and operate in systems which are holes within holes, you know, which we're looking at a greater picture so that we can actually regenerate the health of the entire ecosystem and provide a stronger foundation for year on year health, you know? Um, so yeah, I mean, we, there's so many different definitions out there, but I just think it's, you know, how do we create more 
by living in tune with nature, you know? From your perspective, does livestock have to be a part of that journey? You know, I think it's a very use, just like anything, right? There's tools to be used in every use case. So can you regenerate land without the you know, integration of livestock? I'm sure. I know there's folks out there all across the world who are doing it. You know, not every system or person has the capability to manage livestock in a system. But when we're looking at different eco regions or ecosystems or, you know, habitats, et cetera, when we start looking at grasslands, which is what, you know, land to market and, and the Savory Institute focus on a lot, they're an essential part, especially ruminant animals, to the regeneration of these ecosystems. You know, livestock and grasslands have co evolved over hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years. And really, in, in those ecosystems or those habitats, they're essential for each other, um, you know, and, that, and that's, in my opinion, a super part kind of going back to that definition of regeneration. It's understanding what the context we're talking about. Right. Obviously, you know, um, a cropland system or, or even a market garden isn't the same thing as a grassland. Paint a picture for us. If we're looking at the globe, we're looking at the, at the whole world. Can just help us broadly. Where do we find grasslands? Uh, you know, let's. Uh, uh, I know I'm going to have you narrow it down to a handful of continents, but just just broadly speaking, because some people would be listening to this and say, "Well, no, I I, I get it, I get it." What do you call grasslands? Uh, is it uh, you know grass in the in the in the park, or are you talking about savannas in Africa, or you know, uh, help us see it, picture this grasslands. Of course. So, you know, a grassland, yeah, I mean, they're all over, right? In every continent, there's grasslands, um, minus Antarctica, of course. <laughs> um, but a grassland is this vast ecosystem of, you know, scattered trees and oak savanna, if you like, in, in what would be maybe in California's context, or in the great prairies of the United States, where you have these open expanses, deep-rooted perennial grass systems that are essentially these incredible carbon sinks, incredibly diverse ecosystems, where you have integrated natural patterns of intense activity, rest, recovery, and then the regrowth of those grasses. And those grasses, you know, they can be in the, the Serengetis, they can be in Australia, it could be in North America, Patagonia. You know, we're talking about these really vast ecosystems that cover a lot of ground and essentially are, you know, exactly that, literally covering, covering ground um, in places where there might not be dense forests or, or um, you know, these other ecosystems that exist across the planet. You know, I think the people that are critical of livestock, for example, they're, they're focusing on what they believe is the concern of con contribution to greenhouse gases. One of the things that's usually left out is that how much of the, of the land on Earth really is not suited for crops. Yes. I mean, it's, it's best use. Um, you know, Mother Nature is deciding, you know, the best use here is grasslands. And when you try to force some of these areas into being crops, it's it's not as simple as some people I still hear almost almost weekly. I'll go into different sites and I'll see people saying, why don't they just grow carrots instead of having, you know, Herefords out there on a thousand acres of grass? Uh, and you must bat your head against the wall sometimes, or do you run into that? I would imagine. Do you do you help them see the picture of how much of the earth couldn't really be used for much else? Well, other than grasslands. 
Yeah. So it is, you know, I mean, it's probably 40, 45% of all land in, in the, in the world um, could be considered a, you know, either brittle or, or, or seasonal rain pattern grassland or a more consistent or humid grassland. So most grasslands usually do have that on and off cycle of water. And a lot of times when we talk about cropping versus grasslands or cropping in grasslands ecosystems, you know, the, not the, I never like to say the most important or the biggest in anything because it's all contextual, but usually at least in today's context, you know, water is a huge limiting factor in cropland systems. And if you're turning grasslands, which have seasonal precipitation patterns or climate patterns, and you're requiring large scale irrigation to crop in those grasslands, not only are you disrupting nature's natural processes in terms of, you know, how these grasses would grow year on year with this kind of perennial rest and recovery and graze mentality, but you're acquiring massive amounts of infrastructure for irrigating crops with heavy amount of water intensity. And, you know, um, I could always, we could always get into the argument or, or whatever it is, the debate between livestock and cropping systems. But, you know, when it comes to beyond just carbon mentality, which is what a lot of people like to focus on, and you start to think about these greater biodiversity implications, you know, water is a sustaining principle of life. And when you're planting carrots year on year in grassland ecosystems, not not hating on carrot farmers, all, all farmers and producers should should, you know, have a level of respect that maybe isn't always entitled in this world. But, you know, understanding the contents of that region and how grasses actually provide that regenerative mentality there where the next year there's the potential for more, not the requirement of higher levels of inputs for maybe the same or or even less yield, which is what we're seeing in a lot of cropland systems across the world. You know, somebody pointed out to me that that uh, the grasslands want to come back so bad that native navy grasses, even when they're in ranges, ranches and fields and so forth, or they've been somewhat abused that they've um, they try to kill them off and you can't. I mean, you're given half a chance. Uh, they come back. I mean, you know, they've they're ten thousand years old, yeah. and uh, left to their own devices, they find a way to struggle back up and get on their feet again and and be alive. <laughs> that 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 will to live almost with with uh, with perennial uh, and native grasses is is that a fact? So that's the beautiful thing about nature is that facts are just forever varied, right? And and yes, right. it is a fact. And, you know, um, I'm actually glad you brought this up because, you know, obviously within land to market and, and savory, we talk a lot about holistic management, this idea of how do you manage land within the context, integrate livestock appropriately to match animal to forage, etc. But from like an ecosystem perspective, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of Nicole Masters. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with her or not, but she's kind of a leading soil scientist and, and consultant across the world. And I actually was in her create uh, masterclass, which was a pretty intensive soil science deep dive for those who maybe didn't want to necessarily go back to school for that. Um, and, you know, something we talked about a lot was these triggers of what we call the latency bank in ecosystems, right? So a lot of times we have this assumption that you have to plant seed in order for seed to germinate. Well, the I don't know the number. I'm not going to pretend to know the number, but the latent seed bank in these ecosystems from hundreds of thousands of years of grass growing, seeding out, being grazed, dropping seed over and over again is absolutely incredible. 
And what nature does when we try to kill these grasses, you know, so they don't come back is it's waiting for the right signal, whether that's precipitation, mineralization, animal impact, or a combination of a bunch of different factors to signal to that seed to re-germinate because that's what nature wants it to be. It wants that ground covered. It wants those grasses to be drawing down carbon and feeding the whole community of biological activity of macro and microfauna, of the earthworms, of the other roots and plants in that system. And so the short answer, uh, even though I just kind of ten, you know, went on a tangent, was yes, of course. There's there's so many seeds and activity in the soil, but the question is, is how do we help these ecosystems that have been degraded to trigger the right responses so that natural succession of a grassland comes back and we we see these beautiful deep rooted ecosystems that you know could support millions of of livestock and and other animals. You know, I mean before. The intervention of colonial Europe with the buffalo, we, I mean, we have estimates between 50 and 80 million buffalo used to roam the North American plains. I mean, that's a lot of animals. And nobody back then was complaining, oh, man, there's too much methane coming from these buffalo. You know, I mean, it was nature's capacity to have those ecosystems functioning in a healthy way to support a massive amount of life. You know, I mean, nature wants life. Yeah. Well, speaking of life. The other thing that's happening in in the ground is a is a healthy microbial community. So I'm I'm wondering if you've got you know the seeds, you've got the 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 natural life that should be coming from there. Are there microbes hanging around? Or do you have to make sure you're getting livestock back out there to kind of help them along to get them uh, to build up the microbial life again? Is there some of both? Yes, there's there's some of both. Um, it, it always depends on where you're starting from, right? So if you're looking at a super degraded, desertified grassland, you might have to work a little harder than maybe a, a healthy or, or healthier system, um, you know, that's been managed in a, again, I don't want to use correct, but I, I try not to, to use binary black and white terms sure, in nature because sure. it just never is. But, you know, if you think about the role of a ruminant. And, and a lot of times it's amazing in, in this conversation, we never ask why is it called a ruminant, but it's because it has a ruminant, right? And a ruminant is this essentially biological chamber inside of a of a of any sort of ruminant, you know, cow, sheep, etc. That when they ingest grass, the rumen helps break down the cellulose in the plant and its plant wall or in cell walls and make it a digestible format for the cow to absorb nutrients and then to, to drop manure essentially. And that manure through this process of biological activity in the rumen becomes this like just massive amount of biological life that that soil needs, that those grasses need, that the mineralization process in the soil requires. And it's literally like dropping this beautiful um, biological party, if you like, (laughs) into the soil. And when you imagine these large herds doing this across grasslands, Year on year, they are inoculating, if you like, these massive ecosystems with biological activity. So it's not to say there isn't biological activity before that cow comes along or that sheep or that deer even. You know, it's just to say that they add this regenerative process of if that biological activity was damaged from, you know, a natural weather event or climate catastrophe or whatever it may be, these animals come back and help restore that, regenerate, etc., And the same thing if they're already abundant, you know, you have this just continued addition 
of natural inputs into the soil ecosystem. So I can I can just picture these little microbes that have been deserted for a while, and some of them have still survived in the soil. And I think, oh, good news, the livestock are back. Here comes some here comes some reinforcements. Here comes the party. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's what it is, you know. And um, you know, you see if you go into a pasture and you see fungi growing out of a, a cow patty. I mean, everyone's heard that. You know, you can find mushrooms in a cow patty. I mean, that's a different form of biological activity. And all grasslands have a balance between bacteria. And, and, and a variety of different biological organisms and fungal matter, right? And so that livestock is helping address or rebalance that that ideal ratio where, you know, the carbon to nitrogen or fungi to bacteria ratio is, is healthy in, in an ecosystem. Now, I suppose that non-ruminants... Um... When when they are uh, when their manure is out there on soils, it's contributing something as well. But there's not much for them to eat. I mean, um, you know, pigs can be in areas where they get acorns and so forth, and a few other things. And chickens find things to peck around and on pasture, um, but they're not nearly the same as the ruminant animals, like you mentioned, sheep, yeah. sheep goats, deer, cattle. Uh, that that are able to make use of the, of the product. Now let's skip ahead. Uh, I find this fascinating. You can tell. I'm, I think some of our listeners do too. We've had people on farm to table talk before. Some of my favorite conversations have been people that have been associated with Savory Institute because it just makes so much sense to me and uh, like what you're doing. But now let's for those that it's sort of new to them. Tell the story here of land to market. We jumped ahead and got all of this about talking about what's happening out here with regenerative agriculture. But what's land to market? What's your reason to exist? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, the reason land to market exists is that we know that there's a bunch of producers out there who are doing amazing work. And there are a bunch of people who want to recognize the amazing work of these producers through the products that they make by their management practices. So the why we exist is to essentially reimagine what a regenerative supply chain and sourcing solution would look like for brands and for producers alike. So we have this long, modern, globalized supply chain that is broken up and fragmented. It's super hard to understand traceability and transparency practices, outcomes, whatever it may be. And what Land to Market is, is we are focused on providing the capacity to brands and producers alike to create resilient supply chains based on the outcomes of regenerative or holistic management in landscapes. And um, yeah, and, and that's that's why we're here. We, we want people to understand that you know, supply chains don't have to exist in this super fragmented, you know, blurry world. I mean, we we can create a way where a regenerative producer, if you like, or a producer who is managing land and regenerative regenerating ecosystems can indeed have their product recognized, purchased and bought by a brand. You know, the thing that I stop and think about is that when you talk about this regenerative approach and, and we talk about the grasslands, there's much of the country, much of the world that the feed is not that great for 12 months of the year. Yep. So you end up having grasslands go dormant. There's some nutritional value, but less. And so in the course of the year, a ruminant is getting more nutrition 
um, you know, when it's when everything's going well. So where does it fit to be able to be uh, using hay or some other feed to extend and fill in the spots where the, you know, the seasonal grasslands might not be able to, you know, provide everything that's necessary? Yeah. And, and you know, maybe I'll I'll just step back one more step to make sure everyone's on the same page with what the Savory Institute does and what Land to Market does, because Good. I think it Good. will help clarify kind of this land to market resilient sourcing strategy mentality and the savory managing of land strategy, right? This holistic management concept. Sure. And so land to market and the Savory Institute work very closely together. Um Savory Institute, you know, what they're focused on is educating and expanding holistic management on land bases. And this covers holistic management is based on a few key insights, you know, the brittleness scale, which is taking into account these dry and wet seasons of, of grasslands. You have your nature function whole, you know, there's a systematic approach. It's not just individual silos. You have this predator-prey relationship where livestock would be moving in you know, high disturbance groups, essentially, with this rest and recovery aspect coming in. And in regards to the hay side of the world or, or winter feed, et cetera, when a producer or, or a rancher or farmer is looking at the managing of livestock through holistic management, you're really trying to understand over a growing and non-growing season. So, right, this, this winter time, if you like, and spring and summer growth. And in some cases, summertime can be actually a stagnation of grass too due to temperature or precipitation. And so that savory side, that holistic management side is how do you match what your land has, right? In terms of forage availability year round to the amount of animals you have and, and the amount of impact you can have on the land. And so that encompasses planning for this additional need of hay if you need it in the winter time or matching your animals so that you can still graze in a non-dormant season, if possible, by, that, by the land. Every context is different. Now, where land of market comes in is what we're interested in is for producers who are operating in that context, who are planning their year-long grazing mentality, um, their, their grazing plan, if you like, to match their land-based uh, capacity to, to manage those animals, is can we see year-on-year improvement in that land based based on outcomes? And if so, can we communicate that to the market, you know, for the benefit of producers and brands alike? And so we're really this market acceleration tool for these producers who are already managing land in this capacity. Does that kind of clarify sure, sure. Maybe, no, maybe the I... two two sides of it? It's not really two sides, but yeah. Well, and then you're looking at going through the process and are you, are you supporting then a brand that here is the story of this product? And so stories about the brand, whether it's, uh, whether it's a label, whether it's outreach to the food chain itself, is that your space? Yeah. So that resilient regenerative supply chain if you like that sourcing solution let's let's call it resilient regenerative sourcing solution land to market we kind of have two buckets where we operate underneath that right we have this kind of supply chain white glove consultancy work if you like where we work with brands and producers alike to build the supply chain if it doesn't exist so you can imagine 
you know, there it involves key supply chain partners who are aggregating or processing the product. And it requires a brand wanting to actually go through that and a producer wanting to communicate with the brand. So there, there's that side. And then there's the actual verification side, right? This labeling process, this auditing to ensure that what a brand is selling or claiming is actually coming from material from regeneratively but holistically managed land. And so, for example, recently, um, UGG just released maybe in the last week or so um, what their classic mini regenerate boot. And this boot is uses the shearling from regeneratively managed and positively outcome ranches um, in New Zealand underneath the Atkins Ranch Farm Group. And so we helped build, verify, and tell the story of that process, you know? And so under that supply chain side, you have, you know, the supply and the storytelling, as well as the verification of the science, the outcomes of the land. And then on the other side, you have this actual labeling and communication of, of this to the market. You know, I had beef last night that I had picked up this weekend frozen because that's one of the things that I find with local grass fed. Oftentimes you need to go to frozen rather than fresh because they're they're trying to make sure they're taking maximum use of their of their grasses. And um, so it's usually frozen, which I find no problem. I take it home, put it in the refrigerator. And the, what we did yesterday was we put it in a, um, a slow cooker and and had a roast and made Italian beef sandwiches. And we got leftovers for a couple more days. But when talking to, to the farmer who has his own grass-fed operation, I, I wonder if people like that. Can they can figure out how they get under your umbrella? They think that there are people that are trying to raise uh, lambs and goats and, and cattle and may not be associated with the works you're doing. Is there a way that they can join you? Is there a way that they can find how they can be part of this uh, umbrella that you're creating? Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, that's it's kind of. One of the observations, you know, not just at my time in land and market, but my time operating in the regenerative space is there's this almost this paradox between supply and demand, where on the supply side, people are saying, oh, there's no demand. Nobody wants to buy my product. And on the demand side, people are saying, oh, there's no supply. I can't find anybody who produces this way. And that is exactly what and it's actually a big reason why I joined land and market is you know, building those bridges between these discrepancies in this supply and demand mentality is essential for the movement of a profitable, right? I mean, producers, brands alike, they need to work within real margins and resilient way of, of connecting these dots and really just building these bridges outright. And when a producer or farmer is interested in maybe understanding more about land to market and the whole process of, of, of joining this umbrella, if you like, you can go to our website, landtomarket.com. There's a, a inquiry uh, space where you can contact and more than likely you'll be directed to me. <laughs> um, I, I handle a lot of those producer relationships and we'll discuss what it looks like. You know, is there um, a supply chain already built in your eco region? Do we need to look at a more in-depth uh, opportunity maybe to connect to a specific brand? Does your product meet the requirements of somebody already sourcing regenerative materials? It really is uh, an engaged process of connecting this supply to demand and ensuring 
along the whole way, because the key part of land to market and what separates us is we are outcomes based, not practice based. And that that sometimes is a little unnerving for folks because it's, you know, principles, practices. That's what a lot of this space contains. And there's nothing wrong with that. But we really want to focus on is land actually regenerating? What are the actual outcomes that are happening if we monitor land health year on year? And if they are improving, that's how we make that claim to the market. You know, the traditional system of meat uh, has has become these massive global processing plants. And there's just a handful of them that cover all the meat in the entire world. So the new frontier has been uh, with USDA support, smaller plants starting to get started. There's grants out there and so forth. And I'm and I would think that many of those plants uh, are the next spot for many of the fa- farmers and ranchers that are taking this regenerative approach and that they need to go through a local processor to be able to get you know the meat in shape. They can sell it to consumers and restaurants and so forth. Do you connect with that level, with the processor oh, yeah. level? Big time. They... So again, I don't like using the most important or anything of, of, of this regard, but from a unlocking the supply chain, this resilience aspect, right? The key supply chain partners, these processors, these aggregators, these are the folks that have the capacity to reach back in the chain and forwards in the chain at the same time. And we fully understand that these processors are essential. You know, we, we need processors to be on the same page with the regenerative producers to actually get this traceability and this resilient supply chain for whoever might be buying that product. So in land to market, we actually have a supply chain team. And that is a huge part of that where Megan Michael John, who is the VP of supply chain, she focuses a lot of her time on building these relationships with these supply chain partners to, to really ensure that we not only can build the chain, but actually communicate the value and understanding that is regenerative agriculture. That is this mindset of thinking about how do we manage land and therefore product flow in a healthier way for everybody involved. Um, and so it's it's a huge part of what we do. And it's it's essential. You know, it's essential for this um, this movement to continue to move forward. Well, the spot then that you get to the retail level between the consumer and the producer, you get the processor, but then there's something has to happen. There has to be, I suppose, uh, supermarkets, retail stores, co-ops and so forth, or restaurants uh, that believe there is a consumer demand or they they believe in the story enough that they want to create a consumer demand. And, and, are you able to get to that position where you, people are in that spot, either discovering, you know, and I can imagine chefs that I've talked to before and others that think, I think this is a good idea, but they're a little uncertain how many of their current customers share that view. Um, and then they have this, they're kind of torn in a way because they sort of want to be missionaries. You know, they're yeah. not strict marketers and to the extent in that just having what's going to sell but it's also what they believe is is right. So there's this kind of balancing, I think, of, of again, trying to market in the sense of, hey, I think I can jump on this one. And there's some people that were more likely to come to us because of jumping on the story. 
but they can also honestly feel this is the right thing for the earth, for the climate, you know, and and so we're going to we're going to promote it, even though maybe the demand has to be developed. So I, there was a question in there some someplace. I'm 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 sure why I was, <laughs> but, but I'm trying to picture whether you find yourselves somewhere in that spot of helping that along, facilitating that, either discovering uh, the mission or also kind of helping them recognize that they're consumers that are also uh, interested in buying products that are produced that way. 100%. And we, you know, it would be way easier in my life and my job if it was just one or the other, but it never is. It is amazing how this journey of regeneration, if you like, everyone is starting at different points. So we have, you know, we have folks who come to us and are like, hey, we know about this. What do we do? And that's like, that's where the conversation starts. And then we have some folks who are like, hey, I've been, you know, producing in this way, or I've been buying, um, you know, raw material in this way underneath this, like, let's say, sustainability metric or, or idea. How do we take it to the next level? And then there's the the consumer side or the retail side where they're saying, hey, our consumers are demanding a higher level of, you know, verified regeneration or sustainability, ideally regeneration, um, you know, for, for the products that are being displayed in our shelves. And so it's really all of it. We we find ourselves in every conversation. And again, you know, when I joined Land to Market, you know, I've been saying for years in, in my kind of a mantra in my mind was, you know, I, I lived in Europe for a while. I, I've, I've luckily been able to travel um, a lot of the, a lot of places. And it's actually how I got into farming when I was much younger was was through traveling to different farms around the world and and just working there for for extended period of time. And I have I try to adopt what I call a global mindset and a local heart. Right. And my idea behind that is. It is also different all over the world, but when you boil it down to the local level, we're all humans, we're all people, we all have relationship-based dealings every day. And the same thing I see in land to market. We're dealing with these global operations, you know, where there's so many complications, but the complexity between a local idea and a global idea is usually this not the same complexity, but we're trying to understand you know, how do we communicate? How do we build these bridges? How do we bridge the gap between what has existed, right? Let's say classic market demand mentality and production standards like you were talking about, and this idea of how do we truly build resilience, right? And every notch, if you like, between that local and global level, we're finding the same questions. It's not at all all the same. But it's amazing how it all boils down to this understanding that we need to shift our mindset if we really want to adopt resilient and regenerative strategies from a producer level all the way to global supply chain level. You know, one of the things that gives me some some hope about all of this, or more than hope, I'd say, is that you're getting help sometimes from meat cutters that are still exist behind some meat counters. And even though... Uh, there are fewer um, butchers than there used to be in supermarkets, at least they're, they're coming back. And I've been able to have conversations with people talking about the meat and the meat case. 
and they know about the farms they know about the ranches and and some of the independents are you know were proud to point out to me that they were going out to visit some farms and see the systems and try to understand them better uh and i've had many people that have been on this show that have been in that case and chefs too and yeah. chefs that are are not simply you know calling for an order of this or that but trying to go out and support the ranches and farms and know something about the production systems and then consumers as well consumers that are you know careful about what they're buying and they want to know those stories and they're really really curious about it and if they give half an opportunity they'll go out and visit a farm visit a ranch and learn about the programs a little bit more yeah definitely and you know we have so we have a let's say umbrella of over 80 brands um who who, who we, we work with and we operate with and every year we do our member event and the savory institute actually has a ranch in colorado called west bijou and that's where we held our member event this year and we had probably over 50 people from various brands all the way from you know your your smaller um entrepreneurial startup food brands or or, or even meat brands all the way up to these large scale huge brands that that um, have massive supply chains all on a ranch that's under holistic management all talking about and looking at the land while also collaborating and communicating with each other with transparency and respect and that ability to bring folks together on land it is amazing mm -hmm. amazing the aha moments that happen and so i've referenced a few times this outcome-based mentality that what not just land to market but savory institute has as well and when I say that, there's there's a process, a science behind all this, this verification process called ecological outcome verification. And it's a yearly monitoring that happens from accredited monitors all over the world that entails essentially trying to understand the health score of a land base from a short-term and long-term mentality. And so the short-term is this kind of leading indicator, basal, ground cover, um, you know, your biodiversity, et cetera. And then the long-term is this more transect, in-depth monitoring that happens every five years. And we actually got to demonstrate that at this member event. So imagine, you know, essentially executives being on the land and getting down in the soil and looking at how many grass species are actually here. Wait, is that manure decomposing? Do we see signs of a biodiverse or rich life form and all in the context of, you know, trying to move this needle forward? And, and I even was in, in the Iberian Peninsula not too long ago um, visiting regenerative producers out there with brand executives and, and doing the same exact thing. And it really is, you know, if I if I could say if I could, you know, John Kemp always says this, if you could do something different, you know, in his podcast. The same with Cohen with um, investing regenerative ag. You know, I would love for people just to get out on land and see what it looks like to see healthy and resilient and regenerative ecosystems. Because when you have that as your benchmark, maybe, just maybe, we can translate that into the greater concepts of business and relationship building and supply chains. Because when you see it in nature, maybe we can see it in other places too. Oh, I, I agree with you a hundred percent. And if you can get out, get out to the ranches, get out to the farms, it's harder and harder to do that. But when it happens, it's, uh, uh, it's just magical. Now I want to ask you though, about how big your tent is in that I know some people that I feel are 
just outstanding ranchers and farmers, but they'll end up using some grain. And what they argue is that, look, if we have ruminant animals, they're all grass-fed. Um, maybe it's the, the first year or so of their life, but then because of where they are or other, other reasons, they may use some grain to finish. And but it's always usually with hay or some other roughages that are also. Yeah. But for most of their life, they're grass fed. Is there room on the tent for that kind of practice, even though they have uh, grain at the um, perhaps at the end of finishing the product off? Yeah. So. Yes, essentially, is a short answer. And the reason is I, I, I'm going to say the. What we are trying to do is be a voice for the land, right? So we're not practice-based, we're outcome-based. So the way we see it is if a land producer, if a, if, a, if a producer with his land, with his or her land base can continually see positive impacts on their land year on year, whether grain supplementing or not, we're seeing the impacts in the land, right? And so, for example, you, you mentioned earlier in this conversation, this idea of supplemental feeding and maybe the hard times. You know, we don't want to restrict producers who understand their context and their land base better than we could to say, no, you can't do that because we have a problem with grain, which is is not is not our stance. Our stance is, what does the land say? If you're bringing your animals into a small confined area every day to feed them that land is going to be monitored we're we're not we're not excluding that you know if you're operating in any sort of tafo mentality we're not monitoring you you're you're not in our program you know so there are producers who supplemental feed on pasture and do it well you know whether it's through hay bombing or through grain feeding and we can still see results on land um so we let the land be the judge. We we let we let nature tell us what is positively impacting it or not. I, I hope that makes sense. No, it makes a lot of sense. And there's some other areas that just keeps bringing up my mind more some more some more questions. Lately, there has been attention on um, incentive programs to get people to do things that are are best for the for the climate and there have been some large grants from usda and almost every state has grants um are any of those programs you know of uh, this might be out of your area a little bit but i don't know yeah. if any of those programs going to create uh incentives or in encouragement for the kind of production that we're talking about today so i wish i had uh, read every single climate smart <laughs> sure. uh, grant application and, and result. I, I can't speak to that directly. I'm not 100% sure. So I would rather not provide a, a false opinion or false you know, insight into something I, I don't feel comfortable with. Well, and I shouldn't even bring up those crazy questions, although this is a time to have questions like that. Maybe not hey, for us, but for another every question is real. Well, and there's a farm bill coming up. And whether or not the programs in the Farm Bill are going to be um, supporting, encouraging actions. We'll have to wait and see. There'll, there'll be a lot of conversations. What an exciting spot to be in. I want you to tell me a little bit, though, back to your story. You said you spent some time in, in Europe. You lived there for a while. Um, how did you decide to, to start pursuing this area? I mean, there must have been 
some time where you were just concerned with, you know, video games and goofing off or something that you didn't necessarily say that I'm going to be convert contributing to a healthier earth. Um, so what was that transition for you? When did you start getting into this and what brought you to where you are today? Yeah, it's, it's um, a huge part. Why? Yeah, it's, it's the driver of everything, right? So I'm originally from South Carolina. Um, I grew up in Charleston. Dad was a plasterer, mom an English teacher, nothing to do with agriculture. I grew up on an island, um, which is a pretty amazing ecosystem. And I left home at 17 to go study in, in England. And as a kid, I spent most of my time outdoors, you know, whether on farmland or, or nature preserve, et cetera. And when I, I went to study business and through my four-year degree in, in the UK, I got to travel a lot, like I mentioned, and, and visit farms and work on farms kind of haphazardly, to be honest. Uh, the first time I ever went and wolfed, which uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but volunteer farming, essentially. Sure. Sure. I just wanted to go to Portugal because I had some personal circumstances that made life a little difficult and I needed to find a way to clear my mind. And I couldn't afford... Um, to, to stay in a normal environment, if you like. So I was like, hey, farming, I'll, I'll do that for a roof and a, a three meals a day. And I remember when I was 18, I got back to my business degree and I was like, how do I make a career out of that? Because I really, really loved it. I, I didn't understand why. I never had any indication of agriculture in my life. And I always knew, let's say the old term of sustainability was a key driver for what I wanted to do because I just wasn't satisfied with this traditional business school mentality. So I finished my degree a few farms later of the same kind of three, four month stints traveling and farming. I went and did a, my master's in sustainability management in Berlin. And I was in the crux of, let's say, like all ideas are fair game. <laughs> you know, it's Berlin, it's super international. Um, spent two years pretty much every day in this conversation. And it always amazed me how little we talked about the importance of agriculture. And through my years of traveling in places where I didn't speak the same language or didn't know anybody and, and living in those places, food was the greatest communicator. You know, whether or not I could, I could speak the same language as someone else, we would always sit down over a, a plate of food. And I began to realize that food is, it's like music, right? It is what brings people together. And if that food could represent what at the time when I was younger, thinking of what sustainability was, maybe, just maybe, we could start seeing this domino effect into everything else in society. And so I wrote my thesis on these kinds of business models that would promote this. And after my time in academics and, and let's say haphazard travel farming, I was like, I just got to go do this now. Like, I'm tired of just like thinking about it. So I, I actually went and built and, and managed a small scale farm in the Bahamas with another guy. And yeah, and, and it just spiraled from there. Production system to production system, um, worked on a variety of different production agriculture farms. And um, when Land and Market came knocking and, and pretty much offered me this opportunity to work somewhere where that 18 year old brain of like, how do we do this? You know, like how do we bring this to folks who aren't in this space? How does this business model get analyzed by, you know, random kids of a plasterer and and a, a English teacher in business school or in other different parts of society? And um, yeah, it just was a natural progression to this. Like, how do we build bridges between folks 
all over the world, local and global, who are based in these regenerative values of providing more back while taking less. And, and that was kind of the story. Boy, I love that story. And it reminds me when um, when I was a lot younger, the people you'd run into that had these tremendous experiences often were coming back from Peace Corps. And they had, you know, Peace Corps. And then you mentioned that you were a woofer and uh, people that uh, wondering what a woofer is, but it's what the world worldwide uh, organization of oper- or organic farming, uh, yep, something, like that. something like that. Something like that. Yeah. And, and I've known many people that were similar in that they didn't grow up on a farm or ranch, but they really kind of got the feelings that this is this is what matters and they had the opportunity to be to be woofers and then have come back and find a way to contribute and it we're we're sure grateful that people have had those opportunities but i think we should be especially grateful that they're doing things like you're doing that they're finding programs such as your program. And and I think that it's one of the things now I want to come back and ask you to, if people are listening to this, they want to know more about not only your story, they're kind of sitting there thinking they may be able to find a, a venture for themselves or their farm or their ranch or their consumers or their processors. Where do you send them? Where do they find more information on the things we've talked about today? Yep, landamarket.com. That's that's where you can find everything to do with our our program, our business, our team. You know, if you want to look at my little profile and see a little short snippet, whatever it might be, it's it's landamarket.com. Well, I tell you what, I, I think you're going to have people listening today that are kind of re-inspired. There's somebody that's saying, gee, I want to be a part of that. Uh, whether they want it as a consumer or a processor or perhaps a retailer or supermarket. We have some listeners all over the world, and I'm glad that you were able to come and be with us today. Love your story. I think it's important what you're doing, and thank you for being on Farm to Table Talk. I really appreciate it. It's been absolutely a pleasure. Cheers. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. 